Hi, everyone. Welcome to Finding Anchor, Parenting in the New Non-Normal, a podcast for parents and their teens. My name is Tim Cavell. And I'm Phyllis Fagel. Tim and I are both authors and therapists who work with parents, teens, and families. I wrote the book, Middle School Matters, The 10 Key Skills Kids Need to Thrive in Middle School and Beyond, and How Parents Can Help. And I wrote a book for therapists called Working with Parents of Aggressive Children. We both also work in schools. Phyllis is the counselor at Sheridan School, a K-8 school in Washington, D.C., and I teach at the University of Arkansas in the Department of Psychological Science. The past year has been hard on many of us. We are still dealing with a global pandemic, even after months of being locked down and staying socially distanced. Our aim with each podcast episode is to offer support, information, hope, and affirmation to parents and teens, especially those who are struggling emotionally during these tough times. Finding Anchor is a five-part limited series presented by Trestle Tree. New episodes will air every Wednesday. You can listen and subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you do your listening. I am so happy to be here today with Tim and with Samir Hinduja. Samir is a professor in the School of Criminology and Criminal Justice at Florida Atlantic University. He is co-director of the Cyberbullying Research Center and faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center at Harvard University. Samir is recognized internationally for his groundbreaking work on the subjects of cyberbullying and safe social media use. And I can't think of a better time or a more needed time in history to talk to somebody who is an expert on all things social media, screen, and online learning related. So welcome, Samir. Thank you for coming and joining us. It's my pleasure. I look forward to the conversation. We're speaking to parents today, and I'm really interested in what you're hearing from parents as well. What are some of the biggest concerns that you are hearing in your line of work? So we are against this backdrop where a lot of parents continually are dealing with a lot of life struggles and stresses, and perhaps inordinately so because of the pandemic. Yes, it seems like we have hope on the horizon as things are getting a little bit better with the country slowly opening up but they're still at their wits end. They're still overextended and they're still wrestling with so many issues. That again is our backdrop. And on top of that, they're trying to negotiate, okay, my kids are now going back to school full-time, let's say, or for more days per week. And how might this affect them socially and relationally? And then of course, it's the screen time, which we know has been on a massive uptick in the last 11 to 12 months that they're still sort of trying to negotiate and, and work through. I think a lot of parents, even ones who prior to the pandemic said no screens at all. I even have students whose families don't have a TV in the home before all of this started, whose kids are now spending an exorbitant amount of time online. And they're having this dual source of anxiety. On the one hand, they're feeling like they somehow have failed as parents. And they're also really concerned about how they'll pull their child back to interacting in person with people, back to engaging in real life. Do you have any advice for them or any reasons for optimism maybe too? I'll first say that I'm very hard on myself as a parent. And I feel like, you know, we take up this shame and this blame. It's just not healthy at all. I think that if we do our level best every single day, then we can lay our head down on our pillow at night and say, you know what? I've given all that I can. You know, I'm trying to maintain my own sanity and well-being. And there's so many complexities just in living, just in adulting that we're all facing. And so I do ask for more graciousness, not just that we give towards others, but also to ourselves. And then thinking about 
whether students are going to be able to naturally and easily get back to normal when it comes to socializing, I actually think that they're going to snap back pretty darn quick. People have asked me, you know, do you think you'll see an uptick in school-based bullying because they still have all these stresses that they're facing? I don't really want to speculate in one way or another, but I personally think in terms of being hopeful that we're going to see just this brightness, more energy, more excitement because they're back in their normal environments. They're back interacting in all the ways that they've grown up interacting that absolutely will be a net positive when it comes to their mental health. Do you think that for kids who have developed an unhealthy or an excessive attachment to screen use, do you think that they will be really resist their parents' authority when their parents try to set those limits? Or have you seen any strategies that are particularly helpful that are not too combative, that don't increase attention in the house to get kids to get offline, go outside, get off the couch, do something different? I first want to say that I recognize how difficult it is to negotiate boundaries and limits with your children. I'm just thinking about my own children and how, oh man, they push me in different sorts of ways. We have got to remember that, you know, we're parents and technology use, it's a privilege and not a right. Maybe we have been a little bit lax because we're just surviving over the last, let's say, year. But as we tighten the reins a little bit, hopefully we do so with calmness and we're able to explain to them the reasons why. You know, we want them to now focus a lot more on school and those relationships. We want them to be well-rounded because success down the road is dependent on that. And we understand the positives of tech. We understand how social media is meeting all sorts of needs that you have, but we still always want to make sure that there's a balance, like in anything in life. I've come across a couple of studies that looked at how students are perceiving the support from teachers during COVID when they're in school remotely. And not surprisingly, the tendency for these data is to suggest that students don't feel as supported. There's less communication from their teachers. But it makes me wonder about the online interaction away from school with peers. One of the more common ways, of course, is through online gaming. And I'm wondering if they're squirreled away in their room, if there's less support from teachers, if it's kind of the wild, wild west out there and, you know, there's some casualties. Uh, You've done some interesting research, or at least you've pointed to some interesting research involving bullying, harassment through online gaming. You mind commenting on that? When it comes to the first point, just thinking about teachers and whether or not they've done a good job in reaching out to students who are learning at home, I think that maybe they've wanted to. You know, the intention has been there, but it's just been so difficult with everything else on their plates, having to go to more faculty meetings and committee meetings, trying to negotiate online learning and hybrid learning. So it's been challenging. And I think that's kind of a bummer because we know that the number one place that students look to for help is the school, more so than the parents. And so we know that the school has such a pivotal role to play. My hope is that, and actually this is what I'm seeing happening, schools, as they're welcoming students back here in the spring and as these months continue to go on, they're really trying to be intentional. They're trying to figure out some unique creative ways to build excitement, to build energy, to build school spirits and hope, to make sure that every single individual kid does feel welcomed back. That's a worthy endeavor. I think that more and more time and energy and resources by educators should be pulled in that direction. Now, with regard to gaming, we know that many youth have spent perhaps more time online And I think that's good. And many times the media likes to poo-poo gaming and many parents, unfortunately, just conceive of it as a waste of time, even though without a doubt, students are building various sorts of skills in many of the games they're playing. And, you know, Phyllis, we know that many educators use some of these games in the classroom to teach various sorts of skills. Recently, I had a conversation with some individuals and they were just talking about trash talking in games. Tim, you know, you grew up and I grew up both as boys and into men and we dealt with trash talking 
all the time. It was just part and parcel of the adolescent, let's say, masculine culture. Some of that, of course, crossed the line and caused pain without a doubt. And Phyllis, I'm sure you have your own experiences of trash talk. But I don't think that there's any way to remove trash talk from gaming. I think that it's just, unfortunately, it's part of growing up in some ways. You know, the elbow ribbing, that's relatively good natured. When we work with our students and our children, we want to make sure that if something crosses the line and their sensitivities are deeply upset, that they do feel comfortable talking to us about it, whether it's at school or on a social media app or on their favorite gaming platform. And we also do want to cultivate resilience and try to get them to understand that there are various reasons why people talk smack or want to make you feel bad or make fun of you. In our own research related to motivations, the top reasons include envy, jealousy, insecurity, peer pressure, dealing with your own struggles. None of those reasons are legitimate reasons to free someone to be cruel or mean or a jerk to somebody else. But we can understand that they're fair reasons, since all of us are capable under certain heavy circumstances to be a little bit cruel and mean and cross the line with others. We want our kids to understand that, look, this is a reality. Block people, report people, go to a different server where the gamers might be more friendly. Just keep trying to adjust your environment and control your environment so that you feel safe and secure. As the parent of a 12-year-old boy who I can hear talking through his remote control to a whole bunch of friends all day long, sometimes on the weekends. I actually really appreciate the role that video games have played in keeping him feeling connected socially. For him, it's actually been a lifeline to a sense of community because he has been out of school for a complete year. However, one of the, another positive byproduct, I think, of all of that gaming time I had a couple of students who were hanging out outside after school. This was not my own child. And I asked them if they were here for sports practice. And they were seventh grade boys, just like my own child. And they said, no, we just wanted to talk face to face. And they must have seen the look on my face of surprise because the second seventh grader said, I know, we're surprised too. That's what I'm hoping that in addition to technology providing the lifeline during the pandemic, that maybe it also has planted the seeds for them to have greater appreciation for the face-to-face -face conversation that doesn't really come naturally to 12-year-old boys. And the trash talking can be intense. I think as somebody who is a woman who wasn't raised with that trash talking as the parent of boys and a girl, but I have two boys, listening to it is sometimes shocking. And I have to stop and say, I think you're going to hurt their feelings. You know, I think that's not that kind. And But they're giving it back and forth. And they're actually, often it's very good natured. It's not necessarily aiming to wound. I do think we have to jump in there when they cross that line, which they do all the time because they can't really always tell. They don't have those skills yet. I do see the upside to the technology. On the other hand, for me personally, with my own 12-year-old, the downside has been it's so compelling connecting with friends. It's so compelling that interaction that they're having and playing the games that it's much, much harder to get him to get off the couch and go outside, especially now that it's getting nice out. Do you have any tricks or tips for parents who are trying to, uh, without making it a big deal, encourage their child to go outside? I think that we always need to be thinking that our child wants to know what's in it for them. It seems kind of sad because you just want them to do the right thing because it's the right thing, but unfortunately, sometimes it requires incentives it requires rewards and it requires being in tune with what your child loves. That takes a lot of energy. You know, it takes a lot of energy to spend time sitting on the couch with them while they're gaming to really try to understand what they're enjoying here. But we also need to remember it's okay to 
have a child who enjoys something that you don't get at all. You still need to respect it, still need to try to appreciate that they derive joy from it and be happy that they do. Try to figure out what sort of incentives might work. And it could be related to a big sort of treat, whether we're going to take a drive in a couple of weekends to go to SeaWorld or you know, Magic Mountain or some sort of massive type of event, but I need to see more balance in your life. Can we come to some sort of middle ground understanding about what balance looks like to you and what balance looks like to me so that we are able to not struggle with this anymore? And hopefully, again, with that prize in the distance, that you know incentive, they're more likely to understand that, okay, this matters a lot to my mom. And maybe I don't really fully understand that, but we're all working towards this goal. So let's do it. So another thing that I've noticed during the pandemic, and this is more regarding my students, I'm in a K-8 school, especially with the middle schoolers, fifth grade and up. There's been more uh, casual meanness, not so much to, again, not to hurt somebody, but to get a reaction, period. And I think a lot of that has to do with looking for that social feedback they're not getting in their everyday life. I'm a little worried that that might become more habitual. Are there techniques that you use to stop cyberbullying or to stop meanness online that you think lend themselves to this current time in history? The first thing that I would say is that we need to call out any identity-based bullying, you know, where you're targeting someone because of who they are. And I think about myself, you know, being Asian Indian, you can imagine that I dealt with, you know, people making fun of me, not in some sort of humorous way, but in a way that cut deeply. And I still remember some of those words. We just have to understand that all of that is beyond the pale at this point in time. We just cannot do it. Even if you say JK, LOL, it doesn't matter. You know, individuals are very sensitive about different sorts of things. And so For those who might be part of the majority, the majority race or majority gender or majority sexual orientation, I think that we need to work with them to figure out what they're sensitive about and then be able to express to them, look, if someone made fun of you or created a meme about this aspect of your life or your parents or your upbringing or your background or your past mistakes, I mean, how would you feel? You would be devastated. You might not be sensitive about your race or your religion or something, but please understand that everyone has unique sensitivities. So hopefully that helps a little bit. But then I also get back to resilience, where much of the cyberbullying that we see, it's mild. And if it's more severe, I'm never going to tell a child or my own children to you know, grow in resilience. I'm going to come to their aid and I'm going to do all that I can to support them. But when it's mild, such as name calling or insults or, you know, as you mentioned, meanness, we want them to be able to, to shrug it off a little bit. We want them to be able to understand that, okay, these words, yes, it seems like they're mattering a lot to me and I'm taking on too much of their weight. But the thing is, is that I've given these people so much power over me when I give their words so much power. You're thinking through that, why well, I want to give anyone all this power over me just based on what they say, because I'll never be able to control what they say. And their parents might try and teachers might try, but it just might not ever happen. Then it comes to me, what I'm willing to internalize, what I'm willing to let live rent-free in my head, Hopefully over time, as we work with our kids, they're going to eventually get that and then put up these guardrails or boundaries. Finding Anchor, Parenting in the New Non-Normal is brought to you by Trussell Tree, a health transformation company founded on the belief that anyone, regardless of their level of motivation, can change difficult health behaviors and sustain those changes long term. For the past 20 years, Trussell Tree has helped employers lower their healthcare costs through engaging and influencing employees and family members to holistically improve health conditions such as diabetes, obesity, stress, high blood pressure, and tobacco addiction. A supporting sponsor for this podcast is Foreign Service Benefit Plan. 
focusing on the mental wellness for all members. To learn more about Trussell Tree, visit www.trussletree.com. That's www.trussletree.com. And now, back to the show. It occurs to me that one of an interesting phenomenon that we've experienced is that the social structures that exist within schools have been set aside or obliterated for a while, and now we're looking perhaps to reconstitute them. And that's particularly important for those of us who study school bullying, because if you're not a member of an accepted group, if you don't belong, then you're much more vulnerable to being bullied. And the smack talking, as you're saying, it is so common, Samir. I mean, I played in a noon basketball game today with some buddies of mine, and it's just there, but we all belong. None of us feel otherized because of that smack talking. None of us are set outside the group. In fact, we sort of feel that we belong because we're talked to that way, because we're being teased and it's back and forth. What's the prediction that you might have about when kids go from elementary to middle, these new groups are formed and you've got all these social, physical displays of where you fit in the hierarchy, your looks, your size, your dress. But a lot of those cues have been taken away with remote learning and then we're going to get back together. It might be a pretty messy thing for a little while until those groups start to form and that sense of that dominance hierarchy is formed. Have you thought about that? Yeah, I do think about that a lot in the context of peer relations and, you know, where are our youth, where are our children getting their self-worth from, you know, their identity from? And if it's coming from peer perceptions, which are typically like a roller coaster, you know, you could be popular one day, but then day later you could be made fun of and everyone's, you're the biggest joke across campus. So I'm always thinking about, okay, this kid or my child or, or that child seems to be getting way more of their you know, self-identity and their self-worth from peers. And that's really problematic because it's just so unstable. How can I instead work with them so that they're getting their identity from something that is more stable? For example, can I remind them that you're working really hard to get good grades because you have this future, which is going to be epic. You have these dreams to make a difference in this world. That's really what matters. I often think about when our children get swept up in something bigger than themselves, whether it's a social justice issue or whether it's them getting better in a specific field of study or with a talent or with an extracurricular activity, well, then the minor forms of harassment that come their way, they're able to shrug off because they know that they're caught up in something that's bigger, that's transcendent. But if their lives feel pretty small and they don't have anything else like that that they can get caught up in, then the dramas of the daily school life are what's going to take priority in their minds, and it's going to shape them in negative ways. I love that. I think that's a great idea. And talking about values, I do think really makes a difference. I think as parents, we often forget that we have to be really intentional about teaching what we expect of them. And kids do rise to the level of their parents' expectations. I don't think there's anything more powerful than a parent's disappointment. Not even a teacher, not a friend, nobody can rise to the level of a parent's disappointment. Shifting gears a tiny bit, I'm thinking about another common question that I get from parents, and it relates to upsetting images that their kids are seeing. And kids are seeing a lot more, not only because they're on screens more during the pandemic, but because the news cycle is so fast. And we know that when little kids see the same image multiple times, it can feel to them like they're re-experiencing the event that it's happened multiple times. 
whether they're seeing a school shooting or I've had students come across a beheading once online, young students. We have older kids, even as young as fourth or fifth grade, coming across porn and being really upset by what they're seeing and not understanding it. How do you advise parents when it comes to the things their kids are seeing? Should they talk to them about it ahead of time? How can they handle those moments? All of these forms of upsetting images, whether they have seen it or not, they have probably had someone at school, let's say a classmate up here, tell them about it, that they've you know encountered this or an acquaintance. And so they know it's out there. Who's to tell whether they've actually done the searches and found them intentionally or unintentionally, but without a doubt, they're being exposed to it. And so I think we've got to get in front of it, even though we have filters in place and I can you know recommend software, et cetera. Who knows if they're able to you know, follow back doors or just use someone's cell phone that doesn't have those precautionary measures on it to get access or to see screenshots of this sort of content. Getting out in front of it, I think, is the best tack to take because we're never going to fully be able to always be the parent over shoulder looking at what our kids are looking at. In time, they're going to probably be exposed to so much. And of course, that upsets our consciences, but that's the reality of it all. And so talking about it, helping them understand that, unfortunately, you know, the web there are some seedier corners and there's some content out there, which unfortunately is going to give you nightmares. I brought that up to my own children. Even if they're watching, you know, Disney movies, I talked to them how we want to fast forward through this part because I don't want you to see these images at night where you're waking up screaming. And so, of course, that message would have to be changed when you're talking to different types of students when it comes to their ages. There's always repercussions, I think, when stuff gets burned into our mind and the visible aspect of it all just makes it so permanent. I remember a couple of years ago, we were on vacation and my son, who's 10 at the time, had a really loose tooth and he didn't have any of his own phones or iPads or anything like that. And so he must have borrowed my iPad because I opened it up and saw that the last search he had done on Google was, is it normal for a piece of gum, like your gum that your tooth is attached to, to be hanging off when your tooth falls out? And we ended up having a whole conversation about Googling health things on the web and how you can go down that rabbit hole and you can end up feeling terrified and finding things you never thought you would find. And I realized at the time that that was a really good way to introduce the harder things that they might find. They just found it. We have GoGuardian software at my school. And so we can see that kids sometimes will search something very innocuous and it will try to direct them to something that is really not innocuous at all. Our software does stop them from actually accessing the image, but at home, they may not be able to do that. I have a feeling though, given the reference to the software that you mentioned that there are parents listening who will want to know what you recommend. Yeah. Before I recommend this software, please know that I have no professional relationships or any relationships with any companies. I've just had to take the time to evaluate a number of pieces of software so that I can be intelligent with what I recommend. I really like Circle Plus because it's got this rich feature set when it comes to what you can block, what you can control to the number of minutes or number of hours that a child can spend on, whether it's Minecraft or whatever it is that they might be using on Instagram, et cetera. And also you can adjust it for specific devices. For example, your son has an iPad, your daughter has a Galaxy Tab. And so you can specifically set things up so that the controls work in a certain way on the iPad, but not on the Galaxy Tab. Same with our phones. As adults, you know, we want to be able to access the Wi-Fi all hours of the night, but we can turn it off for this young child, but not this high schooler or whatever you want to do. And it gives you these really detailed and robust reports. Again, Circle Plus, 
check it out because I think it will answer a lot of the questions that you have. But I will also say there are some parents who are looking for a software solution just so they can wipe their hands of their responsibilities. No, not intentionally, but they just hope that the software will do all everything that needs to be done to protect their child from harm. Software it doesn't do that. Software just keeps you in the loop. Your child could still be exposed to harm, and we still need to have those conversations in a non-judgmental fashion so that your kid knows that they can always come to you when they experience anything untoward or unpleasant. Otherwise, they'll just shut down and not talk to you. Samir, can you define bullying? I feel like often parents will ask me if something that happened between their child and a peer who is essentially two kids on equal footing is bullying, but they're really two kids who are taking turns going back and forth and harassing each other, uh, not always kindly, and it might feel like bullying, but could you help parents understand what bullying is? Yeah, the first thing that I'll say, and you brought up such a good point, is that you know our child comes to us, but it's, it's one side of the story. And we know from life, so many years of living life, that there's always at least two and sometimes more sides to the story. Let's keep that in mind as we're trying to work through these problems with our child. It's not to say that our child is lying, but just that there's you know different facets. Thinking about bullying, we have these typical elements coming together, coalescing. Number one, you have harm that takes place. And it's not my perspective of the harm. It's not your perspective of the harm. It's typically the target's perspective of harm. It has to be intentional and not accidental. So there's this you know, desire to be malicious towards somebody else. Then there's that concept of repetition where it's like, oh my goodness, over and over again, I have to deal with it. Whether it's in a hallway, in a classroom, in the lunchroom, online, it's pernicious. And then the last aspect or element would be a power differential. Now, our historical conceptions of school-based bullying, when it comes to power, we might think of this bigger, stronger kid picking on, let's say, a weaker kid. But we know in this day and age, without a doubt, it could have nothing to do with physical strength. It could have to do with wit. It could have to do with emotional intelligence. It could have to do with status. There's a number of ways that there could be a power differential. But while providing with you that definition, I still don't want any of us to get caught up in the semantics. Yes, we have harm that occurs across a continuum where you might have a disagreement on one extreme, then you have conflict, then you have harassment, then you have, let's say, bullying and cyberbullying, then you have threats. You know, that's probably be the most severe form. Again, we shouldn't really get caught up in those elements. I would still say, what is our child explaining to us? You know, what is their situation? What is their story? And how can I round this out by getting some other perspectives? If they're seriously being harmed, then we absolutely need to step in. While we're talking about everything screen, online, in a time of virtual learning, something that's also come up a lot recently, and it's not anything new. We deal with academic dishonesty pre-pandemic. We deal with it during the pandemic. We'll deal with it long after this ends. But there has been a lot more cheating because kids are working virtually, whether they're just working in groups and crowdsourcing answers or they're Googling or they're plagiarizing. What are you seeing and how can parents who want to raise honest kids cope with that or respond to that, prevent it? First, it's an unfair burden, but the school and the educators absolutely need to modify the way that they deliver tests. Even in my own classes, we've been teaching remotely at the university level for 11, 12 months now, and I've had to redo my classes. And do you think I have time to redo my classes and my exams? Absolutely not. But I don't have a piece about my students being able to you know, get answer keys on the web or get answers from a previous semester, whatever the story might be. So now I'm doing these essay exams and it's more work for me, but at least I have a piece about what my students are going to get out of the class if I do things that way. And then when it comes to parents, I do think it does come back to morals and values because 
ultimately we need our children to have a moral compass where their conscience is pricked whenever they do anything wrong. And I truly believe that all youth, even all adults, whenever they're about to do something wrong, such as cheating on a test or on their taxes or whatever it is, if they stopped and paused and really thought through it, they would identify that they have a little bit of a lack of peace. And immediately they might rationalize that or justify it or be able to convince themselves otherwise. But if they stop in that moment and analyze it, they know the difference between right and wrong. And if they have a lack of peace about it, then there's something that's not fully right about it. What I'm trying to do with my own children is get them to listen to that, let's say, still small voice or that prick of the conscience, their hearts being sensitized a little bit more carefully. And as they do, I think it gets louder and louder over time. And it will then continue to guide and constrain their behaviors. But if they get more and more practice rationalizing it away or justifying it or convincing themselves that, hey, I'm just trying to get ahead, well, then their hearts will be hardened, their conscience will be seared, and they'll end up making more and more choices that do not reflect the value system you hope for them to have. You know how you mentioned that parents are the strongest deterrent because kids don't want to disappoint them. That's so very true. We've seen that borne out in the research. Parents are the strongest deterrent above schools and above policies and laws and law enforcement without a doubt. So with that said, continue to have conversations about, you know, the expectations you have in your family, the standards, how it seems like sometimes it might be relativistic or there's a bunch of gray areas. But if you stop and pause and think about it, hey, what was right? And I'm not judging you here, child, son, daughter. I'm not wanting to criticize your decision because we all make mistakes. But in that moment or now as you reflect on it, can you tell that it was a little bit wrong for you to do? And I bet they say yes. There's so many more ways to blow up your life growing up now. I'm so grateful there were no selfies and <laughs> records of anything that we did back when I was growing up. But some of the mistakes kids are making can have really long-term consequences. And I try to save kids from themselves as much as I can. I know that you have a lot of experience helping kids clean up messes. What do parents need to know when their child does do something that could leave a digital footprint that could haunt them? First, they need to understand that it is not the end of the world and they should just try to exercise certain steps in order to, for example, get it down or to get that account deleted. We think about how there's archives of information on the web. We think about search engine caches, et cetera. But the fact that we've got this fire hose of content being produced by these billions of people across the planet means that there's always new content refreshing and replenishing older content and what are gonna primarily rise to the surface in search engine search results. Don't freak out, don't panic, but do what you can when it comes to going on social media sites and getting that content taken down as much as you are able. The thing to remember still is that, okay, it's up there or it's been posted up there and we have to learn from this going forward. With all that said, we do talk a lot about digital reputation. For example, when I speak to schools, et cetera, but we want parents to also know that, yes, let's be careful about the negative stuff that's out there, but hey, what are some ways that we can intentionally leverage social media and the web so that my child is set up for success? For example, this might come as a shock to many parents, but as their child moves into high school, I actually think that child should be on social media. Definitely, you know, let's say LinkedIn and you know, some of those professional type sites. I think that they can use their Instagram profile for, let's say, good if they have a professional appeal to it and if they're demonstrating creativity, if they might demonstrate certain skills or community service. And I've even seen a lot of students increasingly putting their social media URLs, the web addresses, on their resumes because they've been very intentional in making sure that everything they post is quality 
and reflects them in a positive light. And so they want admissions coordinators, they want future employers to actually look for those and then have a better impression about the kid. Additionally, I also want students or youth to get their own domain name. For example, let's say samirhinduja.com would be mine. And let's say you don't have time right now to build it out, but I still think that you should squat it for whatever, $10.99 a year. And then when you have time to build it out, you have a domain name, you add your pictures of you serving the community or you involved in giving a speech or winning an award or whatever it is that again reflects that you have character and integrity. And because it's your first and last name, let's say as part of the domain name, it's going to show up on the first page of Google search results, which is right there in front of those admissions coordinators and future employees to look at. So it's about intentionality there too. As the parent of older teens as well, I appreciate that advice and I will pass that along to my, my own kids. I've also been encouraging my kids, and I love that you emphasize all the good that can come from social media because it's not going anywhere, and we do want to figure out ways to make it work for our kids. But I've also been trying to get kids, whether they're my own or my students, to give shout outs for substantive accomplishments that they've noticed in their friends' lives for a couple of reasons. One is that it is a nice thing to do. And also it puts the emphasis on substantive things as opposed to superficial things like selfies or party pictures, maybe decreases or dampens some of the jealousy that can lead kids to do less pro-social things online. But I also think it kicks off a positive cycle because there is nothing like a kid who wants to reciprocate somebody who has done something nice for them. If one kid makes somebody cupcakes, the other kid's going to make like a huge like three-layer cake. I don't think adults have quite the same tendency. We outgrow that. But with kids, at least, once they kick off that positive cycle, it can change the whole culture within their friend group as well. Yeah, and I'd like to add a couple other tips. As you're working with your child and as they're getting older, I would recommend to you for you to never hesitate to ask for testimonials from anyone in the community who has seen your child do something cool. And then that's the sort of thing that you can add to your website when you build it out or to even you know social media accounts. The next thing that I wanted to recommend was a lot of us have various social media accounts on the major platforms, but when it comes to being intentional about what we want to show up in Google's first page of results, many people don't take the time to create an about me page on Google. Again, if you just Google about me and then Google, you'll see that Google has their own product where you can create sort of a bio page within Google itself. It's called an about me where you can then link to your favorite social media accounts and provide biographical information and pictures, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason why I bring that up is because when figuring out what Google wants to display in the first page of search results for your child's first and last name in school and city, they're going to go to their own product, which is about me, in order to extract some of that information to then show on the first page of Google search results. Take the time to build that out. Many people don't do that, but that's another way that you can, again, be strategic about what is revealed on that first page of Google when you want your child to have a positive digital reputation. When kids are really young, long before we're having them do the About Me page or creating a positive digital presence, and we just want to keep them safe you know, from predators or from interacting with a stranger, what is your advice for parents of kids just getting started to make sure that they're safe? The first thing that I would say is that don't assume that your child is doing nothing and is completely clueless when it comes to online safety. You know, I bet they know a few things. I bet they've talked about it with their peers. Without a doubt, many times we as adults need to be able to support and supplement what they do when it comes to their online safety practices. 
So broach the conversation with them, ask them if they've ever received a message that made them feel creeped out or a little bit weird. How did they respond? Have they ever seen that happen to one of their friends? How did their friend respond? Then you can also talk about bystanding versus upstanding behavior. You can talk about whether they've used any of the safety controls within the app. But all of this, again, must be done without a judgmental tone, without even certain body language, which might convey criticism or blame, because we know our kids, they are so quick to pick up on any of that, and we don't want them to shut down at all. Samir, I want to, on behalf of Phyllis and I, I want to thank you for joining us. This has been a fascinating conversation, and my sense is we could be doing this for another two hours and not even sense the time being passed. But thank you for your time and for your insights and all the work that you're doing on behalf of parents and schools and kids. Thanks, Tim. I appreciate you. I appreciate Phyllis. I mean, we're all pouring ourselves out to make a difference in the lives of youth. And to be honest, it's extremely fulfilling. Thank you, Samir. Bye, everyone. And that's our show. Special thanks today to our presenting sponsor, Trussell Tree. To learn more about the good work they do, visit www.trusseltree.com. You can listen and subscribe to Finding Anchor on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you do your listening. If you liked this episode, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts or sharing the show with a friend. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye now.